0: Good evening. Please take your Bibles and turn to 2nd Kings chapter 22. 2nd <coughs> Kings chapter 22. 2nd Kings 22 verses 8 through 20. 2nd <coughs> Kings 22 <coughs> verses 8 through 20. This is God's word. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. She said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man, Who sent you to me? Thus says the Lord Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him Thus says the Lord God of Israel. "...regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you," declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place." so they brought back word to the king may god bless the reading of his word this way, please father in heaven we thank you for giving us this great book this library of 66 books breathed forth by your spirit for our training our admonition our correction our instruction in righteousness for teaching for doctrine for reproof we pray that you would give us a fire that burns in our hearts to read our English Bibles, to remember the terrible suffering endured by so many, to bring them to us, and we pray that you would help us to love your word, to turn our hearts away from looking at worthless things, and to be revived in your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening I want to speak to you about the Bible's incomparable impact upon the world, The greatest testimony to the folly and wickedness of America today, in 2022, is that, by and large, we are no longer a generation of Bible readers. The Bible is ridiculed in colleges and universities by the most closed-minded and uneducated bigots, we call them professors, even though they actually don't profess to believe anything, uh, except that one grand truth, that there is no truth that all of them need to profess, that perhaps the world's ever seen. The level of ignorance that we have of scripture today is unparalleled in the history of America. Our nation is collapsing into misery, into economic collapse. This is shown by the fact that we can no longer say with certainty what marriage is, uh, how many biological sexes there are, and what constitutes a family. The greatest economic unit of any society is the family. But we evidently no longer know what a family is. Our rebellion against God has taken the form of wholesale murder of unborn children in the name of pleasure, with no strings attached, no responsibility, all done in the name of convenience, along with every form of sexual deviance and perversion known and unknown to mankind. And while these things are destroying us, the very word of God, which, is, which if read and believed would deliver us from our own certain destruction and total unhappiness, it sits there unread, In houses all over this nation, unstudied, openly mocked by those who need its life-giving message the most. In fact, this was true even in England in the 19th century. Charles Spurgeon uh, had a great throwaway line. Someone here shared it with me. Most Bibles in our land have enough dust on them to write the word damnation on them. Humanity without God is a curiously stupid, self-destructive group those who cry the loudest for freedom and pursue whatever they want to do and be in life are themselves practitioners of the lowest and most degrading form of slavery to sin imaginable. And What could be more irrational and more foolish than a man chained to a wall in a rat-infested prison who is disease-ridden, covered in his own filth, and on the brink of starvation, shouting to all the world around him, how great it is to be free. And that's what we have in our nation, a nation of prisoners who believe themselves to be free. That's man without God. That's man without scripture, without God's word. The late Dr. D. James Kennedy wrote a really good book. He wrote a number of really good books. He wrote a book called What If the Bible Had Never Been Written. And it's a wonderful book, a great read. And he wrote this in that book, quote, To speak of the Bible is to speak in superlatives. It is the most published and most widely read book in the world. It is the number one bestseller in the world and has been for centuries. It's the most widely translated book on the planet. Even as you read these words, there are missionaries around the world studying various languages in order to translate the Bible or portions of it into that tongue. Those missionaries may even be the first to put that language into writing. Such work has gone on for centuries. Hundreds of the world's languages first appeared in writing thanks to the Bible. In the past 500 years, since the time of Johannes Gutenberg, the Bible has been published into 2,123 languages and dialects. Even in those places where the Bible has been forbidden, there is a great hunger for the Word of God. Just recently, in Cuba, The communist dictatorship has allowed the sale of the Bible for the first time. The United Bible Society reports, quote, Since 1993, we have been allowed to put Bibles in every library in the country, also under the Ministry of Culture. And this year, 1996, as in 92 and 94, we were able to distribute the Bible at the International Book Fair, where once again, it was the best-selling book. I mean, just break from the quotation. Imagine that. In Cuba, you couldn't sell the Bible at a book fair. It wasn't allowed to be read anywhere. It goes on, for us, it is very interesting that people who do not belong to a church today buy this Bible in the book fair. There's something like an explosion in Cuba because everybody wants to have a Bible. And Kennedy says, how important is the Bible to those who don't have a copy but would like one? We in America often take the scriptures for granted. We usually have more than one copy and we don't realize how precious A copy of the Bible is for those who don't have one. For example, I read recently about a remote village in Indonesia named Siko Rongkong, where many Christians had to share just one Bible among all the members of one church. Then they heard about free Bibles available to them in their language. The only catch was they had to walk all the way to Sapa to get one. Yes, Sapa was far away. A seven-day walk. So a delegate of seven hearty souls walked all the way, picked up the 15 heavy boxes, and carried them all the way back to their village. The United Bible Societies reports that this loving act brought much joy to the villagers. Quote, There was great excitement in Siko Kong, when the travelers returned with 300 Indonesian Bibles. Enough for everyone in the village. No other book inspires this kind of incredible excitement, and commitment. The Bible is indeed the book of books. I remember reading somewhere else, I can't recall uh, where I read it, but the average American home, the average American home, whether the people go to church or not, has four Bibles in it. And the vast majority of them will never be read by anyone. Never be read by anyone. The Bible turned the world upside down. The enemies of God's people, who have understood them the best, have made one of the grandest goals to destroy the written scriptures. Antiochus, long ago a ruler known as the Madman, launched a blood campaign against the Hebrew people with, with an eye to destroying every copy of the Old Testament books on earth. First Maccabees, in the, the uh, Apocrypha, records this in First Maccabees 1.56, says, "...and the officials of Antiochus rent in pieces the books of the law which they found and set them on fire. And whosoever was found with any books of the covenant, the king's sentence delivered them to death." Josephus in his Antiquities, his Jewish Antiquities, written shortly after the time of Christ, said, And if there were any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed. And those Jews with whom they were found miserably perished also. After the coming of Christ and the preaching of the gospel all over the Roman Empire, ten successive Roman emperors, beginning with Nero, persecuted Christ followers, often killing them in the most unimaginably brutal ways. And it was the Emperor Diocletian, I remember when we studied him in seminary, in the year 303, who finally knew what had to be done. He he could see, here's what we have to do to erase Christianity from the earth. The Bible has to be destroyed. And one historian said this, quote, "...all assemblies of Christians were forbidden, and churches were ordered to be torn down." Four different edicts were issued, each excelling the preceding in intensity. One edict ordered the burning of every copy of the Bible, the first instance in Christian history when the scriptures were made the object of attack, end quote. Not not the Christian people, but the Bible. we have got to get rid of it. Even at the time of the Reformation and the widespread printing and distribution of the Bible, the Bible itself, the very Word of God found its way onto the Roman Catholic Church's index of forbidden books. The Council of Trent, Rome's official response to the Reformation, stated clearly that the wide circulation and possession uh, and reading of the Bible would generate, quote, more harm than good, end quote. And therefore, the Council of Trent said that those reading or possessing the Bible, quote, without permission, may not receive absolution from their sins till they have handed copies of the Scriptures over to the proper officials, end quote. It's a sin you can't be absolved from to read the Bible, says Rome. The historian Schroeder said, quote, Persistent effort was made by the Romanizers to suppress the English Bible. In 1543, an act was passed forbidding absolutely the use of Tyndale's English Bible and any reading of the scriptures in assemblies without royal license, quote. It's a terrible tragedy to us who love the Bible, at least, that between 1525 and 1528, the, the estimated number is 18,000 copies of of the Bible were printed, only two fragments of those 18,000 are known to remain today. Two pieces of those 18,000 printed Bibles from 1525 to 1528. Rome was that thorough. The Inquisition was that thorough. The Counter-Reformation was that thorough in its utter contempt and detestation of the Bible. The enemies of Jesus Christ who have understood where the heart of the antithesis really lies between belief and unbelief between believer and unbeliever, have directed the hottest of their hatred primarily at the Bible, at God's word, to attempt to destroy it from the face of the earth. When the Bible was forgotten in Israel, they succumbed very quickly to the world around them. They became very worldly very fast. Is the church all that different? If we don't read the Bible, what does the church tend to look like the world around it? Even the prophets themselves, who were sent by God to call them back to the precious words of life in the scriptures, they were bitterly persecuted, and many of them were murdered for their efforts. Why does Satan hate this book so much? Because the message it contains, which explains God's great historical acts of redemption and his explanation of what they mean, the person, the life, the cross work, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, is the means by which all of Satan's strongholds continue to be destroyed and plundered it makes sense that satan and his enemies would make the bible the object of their hatred were knowledge of the bible to disappear from the earth altogether i have very little doubt we would see what god saw just prior to the flood of noah genesis 6 5 the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Why is it not like that today? Why is it not as evil as it could be? It's Because of the Bible. The Bible is the moral miracle of the world. Vile, erring, wicked men have devoted their lives to contradicting and destroying it, only to die lonely and forgotten. Their names and stories could be told almost endlessly. In France, long ago, the deist, playwright, And just vile wretch of a man, Voltaire, who enjoyed cross-dressing and was morbidly gross and everything he promoted in his life, Voltaire, produced a number of volumes brimming with hatred for the Bible, wrote a lot of books in contempt of Scripture. No one in Europe even did as much as this man did to try to destroy the Bible and to destroy the Christian faith. And France itself as a nation rejected the Scripture and embraced the so-called Enlightenment you might as well just think of the Enlightenment as the Endarkenment, because that's really what it was historically. A movement which exalted unaided human reason as the ultimate source of truth and virtue. And eventually, the greatest event in human history since the fall of the Roman Empire happened, namely the French Revolution. And it was a bath of innocent bloodshed, which ultimately left a power vacuum that was eventually filled by one of the most ruthlessly evil dictators of all time, Napoleon Bonaparte. Since France rejected the Bible and chose to follow human reason, the government of France has collapsed 35 times since then. Voltaire said that within 100 years of his death, Christianity would no longer exist. And since Voltaire's death, he is the one who has been, for the most part, long forgotten. And one historian jokingly pointed out an irony we all need to remember. After his death, Voltaire's house was turned into a publishing house for Bibles. In America, there was Thomas Paine, there was Robert Ingersoll, who gave their pens to attacking the Bible. Thomas Paine died a bitter, lonely old man, having lost most of his friends due to his political views and his hostility to Christianity. His trifling little book, Common Sense, is mostly ignored today. In the city of Stockton, California a city that has more than a quarter of a million people in it, the public library's single copy of Thomas Paine's attack on the Bible, called The Age of Reason, has been checked out 16 times in the last 10 years. What the enemies of God's truth have always noticed is quite simple. The truths preached in the Word of God turned the world upside down. Of course, from our perspective, the doctrines of Scripture are what turns the world right side up. It's rebellious man that's turned it upside down. God's word brings righteousness to the foreground. It brings wholeness to the foreground. It brings reconciliation with God to the foreground, and love, and mercy, and kindness. When the gospel gains a foothold in cities in the book of Acts that we see, in Thessalonica, for example, the enemies of the gospel, they become envious, they stir up riots, they, they have mobs to attack and kill Christian people. Acts 17, verse 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Satan hates the Bible. hates his followers. hates those that love the truth. It's the regenerating power of the living word of God. That's what turns the world right side back up. It breaks the power of sin and creates repentance and faith in the hearts of sinners. Satan's most cherished and beloved strongholds, they shake, they quiver at the word of God. And Peter understood this so very well. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, 22, "...since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever." Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. I want all of you to consider with me what the world was like when Jesus sent his apostles into it to preach the word of God and the gospel of Christ. What was the world like back then? The world at that time, it was filled with superstition. It was filled with cruelty and and lust and the grossest forms of paganism imaginable. And Jesus sent his followers into a world that would prove to be violently hostile to God's truth. And their message was simple. Their message was beautifully simple everywhere they went and preached. All of the established religions that then existed were false and useless and had to be abandoned at all costs. Jesus' apostles told people steeped in sin that they needed new lives and that they were on the surest paths straight to hell when they died if they didn't repent. The gospel did battle against the worst of idolatry, the worst of tradition, the worst of a bigoted Jewish priesthood, sneering philosophers, ignorant and uneducated masses, and bloodthirsty emperors of Rome. And I will tell you that the odds never looked so bleak for any cause in the history of the world. And Jesus' disciples had to battle this with no swords, no guns, no knives, no bombs, tanks, horses, or artillery. Jesus gave them no earthly powers, no worldly weapons, no gimmicks, no fake promises or entertaining silliness to try to compel belief. It is the sheer Holy Spirit power of truth that compelled men to believe. It was the power of God working through the Word of God. J.C. Ryle wrote this, quote, The preacher of Christianity in the first century was not a man with a sword and an army to frighten people or a man with a license to be sensual to allure people like the priests of the shameful idols of the Hindus. No, he was nothing more than one holy man with one holy book. And how did these men of one book prosper? In a few generations, they entirely changed the face of society by the doctrines of the Bible. They emptied the temples of the heathen gods. They starved out idolatry and left it high and dry like a stranded ship. They brought into the world a higher condition of morality between man and man. They raised the character and position of woman. They altered the standard of purity and decency. They put an end to man's cruel and bloody customs, such as the gladiatorial fights. There was no stopping the change. Persecution and opposition were useless. One victory after another was won. One bad thing after another melted away. Whether men liked it or not, they were slowly affected by the movement of the new religion and drawn within the whirlpool of its power. The earth shook and their rotten shelters fell to the ground. End quote. And how did that happen? Because of the Bible. Because of Scripture. This book that our, our culture, our nation hates so much today. If our only confidence, if only it was greater in God's Word. If only we really believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. If only we really believed if it's read and taught it'll change the world. We would stop watching all the meaningless silliness that we do. We would remember that time is the one commodity in our entire existence that can never be replenished. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. Time is the fire in which we all burn and eventually we all die. If you want to be happy, you want to Be productive. You want to sleep well. You want to live a full life of purpose and meaning and bring glory to the Creator of all. You must be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ alone and get a hold of a Bible and wear it down to the nub with studying and reading and prayer and memorization. Ephesians 5, 5, Paul told that church, see then that you walk circumspectly, meaning walk wisely, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are the days we live in evil in America? Redeem the time. We only have a little bit of time before we're all dead. Redeem that time. Make your life useful to the Lord. Think of the incredible victories and the impact that people have had for righteousness and truth upon this world because they became zealous students of the Word of God. When God finally, by His glorious grace, cracked through my own hardened heart and made me his own it was the bible that became my companion and my teacher every day couldn't get enough of it and the more i read it starting at age 18 the more heartbroken i became because of how much of my life i had wasted being a coward chasing meaningless dreams of fame and glory trying to become something i I wasn't the answers had always been there and to see the depth of my own selfishness, my, my evil heart and desires, all of the hatred and the bitterness that has been lodged there for so long, God destroyed it by the cross of Christ through his word. To be entirely forgiven once and for all. To be legally declared righteous before God because of Christ alone. To know that my eternal happiness was secured and would be waiting for me when I died. It just became fuel to the fire. Even remembering both the wonder and heartache of those days, is still hard, even now, and it stirs an even deeper desire to put sin to death and to pursue holiness. God brings us to the very dust of death when he saves our souls and justifies us once for all eternity in our justification and in our salvation. But he raises us back up and gives us new life and then sets us moving forward, moving in a whole new direction in life. And each day that now goes by us is a day that we'll live for him Now we want to know what our Lord and Master bids of us. What should we do now? Peter, a man who had fallen and sinned so badly in his triple denial that he even knew who Jesus was on that night he was arrested before his crucifixion. Peter was a man who understood grace. He really did. He understood what it was to be forgiven and to be given more chances to do what was right. And he said in 1 Peter 4, 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has also ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So you have a little bit of time to live the time you live in the flesh before you die. Don't live it for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Think of the victories that God has given you in your own life since you came to know him. The victories he's given you in your own life over sin. Think of the victory Christ won over the punishment for your sins at the cross. Think of his justifying righteousness that has really and truly been credited into your account before God that you have a claim on eternal life now. Eternal life. Think of it. Think of the masses of people who used to be drowning in sexual filth and perversion who have been delivered from those things to walk in the highway of holiness and happiness and truth in the Lord. Think of the victories of the martyrs who sealed their testimony to Christ with their own blood and whose courage inspired so many to stand strong in their faith and who also by their courage showed the reality of Christ to the very enemies that were killing them. Think of the Roman Catholic State Church whose superstitious falsehoods have destroyed countless millions of souls in Europe for generations after generations. People don't realize this. Starting in 1203, Until 1870, for 667 years, the Inquisition tortured, murdered Christian men, women, and young children even for believing the gospel, for having Bibles. One account I remember uh, hearing the children refused to, quote, gaze adoringly at the sacrament and were tortured and killed for it. A simple German monk Opened the Bible. Opened the Bible. Preached and prayed. And the entire world was changed. Entire continents were evangelized. And Rome's false gospel and Rome's papacy were set at naught. One of my favorite Luther quotes of all time. Luther wrote, quote, See how much he has been able to accomplish through me, though I did no more than pray and preach. The Word did it all. Had I wished... I might have started a war at Worms. But while I sat and drank beer with Philip at Almsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. Talk about victories. And how did all these victories take place? The Bible, Scripture, the Word of God, it was opened, it was read by people again. The Word of God, isn't it glorious to know this? It has lost none of its life-changing power. None. Even through the dark shrouds of our nation today, the scriptures still shine that light. Think about what it has done throughout the world, throughout history. What are the victories of Alexander the Great and Hannibal of Carthage and Julius Caesar and Napoleon when compared with the victories of God's holy word? Think about Europe on the eve of the Reformation. The doctrines of the gospel and how sinners are saved and get to heaven, it had been buried under, under layer after layer after layer of unbiblical human traditions. J.C. Ryle wrote this, quote, Penances and pilgrimages, indulgences, relic worship, image worship, worship saint worship, the worship of the Virgin Mary <clears throat> formed the sum and substance of most people's religion. The church was made an idol. The priests and ministers of the church usurped the place of Christ, and by what means was all this miserable darkness cleared away? By simply bringing forth once more the Bible. It was not merely the preaching of Luther and his friends, which established Protestantism in Germany. The great weapon which overthrew the Roman Catholic Church's power in that country was, was Luther's translation of the Bible into the German tongue. It was not merely the writings of English reformers, which threw down Roman Catholicism in England. The seeds of the work carried forward were first sown by Wycliffe's translation of the Bible many years before. It was not merely the quarrel of Henry VIII and the Pope of Rome, which loosened the Pope's hold on English minds. It was the royal permission to have the Bible translated and set up in churches so that everyone who wanted might read it. Yes, it was the reading and circulation of the Scriptures, which mainly established the cause of Protestantism in England, in Germany, and Switzerland without it the people would probably have returned to their former bondage which the first reformers when the first reformers died but by the reading of the bible the public mind became gradually leavened with the principles of true religion men's eyes became thoroughly open Their spiritual understandings became thoroughly enlarged. The abominations of Roman Catholicism became distinctly visible. The excellence of the pure gospel became a rooted idea in their hearts. It was then in vain for popes to thunder forth excommunications. It was useless for kings and queens to attempt to stop the course of Protestantism by fire and sword. It was all too late. The people knew too much of the Bible, they had seen the light. They had heard the joyful sound. They had tasted the truth. The sun had risen in their minds. The scales had fallen from their eyes. The Bible had done its work within them, and that work was not to be overthrown. The people would not return to Egypt. The clock could not be pushed back again. A mental and moral revolution had been effected, and mainly effected by God's Word. Those are the true revolutions which the Bible effects. What are all the revolutions which France and England have gone through compared to these? No revolutions are so bloodless, none so satisfactory, none so rich in lasting results as the revolutions accomplished by the Bible. This is the book which the well-being of nations has always hinged and with which the best interests of everyone in Christendom at this moment are inseparably tied. By the same proportion that the Bible is honored or not, light or darkness, morality or immorality, true religion or superstition, liberty or tyranny, good laws or bad will be found in a nation. If you won't be governed by the Ten Commandments, you'll be governed by the 10 million commandments. Because that's what tyrants do. You turn away from the Bible, what happens? The state deifies itself. And believes itself to be sovereign over life and death and everything else. It's my conviction that there are many contemporary Christian philosophers, theologians, thinkers today who agree, and I've said this to you before, that the day in which we live right now, in terms of the health of the Christian church in America, that's not true in South Africa, it's not true in South Korea, it's not true in China, and in many places in India, from what I have read. But in America today, I believe we're in worse condition theologically and in terms of our knowledge of Scripture than the Roman Catholic Church was in its darkest days before the Reformation. I really do believe that. You ask the average person who attends a Bible believing conservative church, where are you going to go when you die? Oh, heaven. Why? Because I'm good. You know, over the years that we did those good news clubs, and you know, there, there's a door it might be opening up again. We might be, we might be able to do another one at a, a school nearby. There's some rumblings about this. I'm, I'm getting pretty excited about it. <clears throat> I did a little math, and I believe that I have asked somewhere around 100 little kids where they were going to go when they died. And I think two of them have gotten it right. 100 kids that were church attenders how dare we own Bibles up to our ears and not read them? Men and heads of households and all future heads of households here, we dare not take the leadership that God has assigned to us lightly in our homes. Ephesians six four Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, With the Word. That means, husbands, you read the Word of God to your wife. If we preside over angry children, the fault very often is ours. If our wife's walk with Christ is suffering and she's not growing in her knowledge of the Word of God, we are are failing in our most sacred task if we're married, if we have kids. Plug your ears to the siren calls of entertainment. I want to encourage you. To the siren calls of games and gadgets. There's no end to the silliness, the foolishness that you can Look out on the internet. And all the while, there sits that wondrous book. All the while, there sits that wondrous book. Thinking of John Wycliffe, you know, he was, he was around in the late 1300s. And when he got in big trouble with the Roman church, and they threw him out of the church, and threw him out of teaching there at Oxford, and he was exiled, he decided, you know what? Let's translate the Bible into English. And so they started working on it. But back then, they didn't have movable type. You know how long it took them to make one copy of the Bible in English? It took a scribe a year, a year. And those men that went out and took those Bibles after they they wrote them themselves, they would go out into the highways and byways. They were called the lollards or the poor preachers. And the Inquisition would catch them and and burn those Bibles. You think, can you imagine that? Taking a year of your life to write a Bible in your own language and watching someone throw it on a fire. You know, my dear wife sent me an email a number of years ago with a link to a podcast of <clears throat> Revive Our Hearts, um, which is Nancy Lee DeMoss is a, a really good um, uh, lady, reformed lady. And she's one of the very few uh, godly reformed women out there doing stuff like that. And, and on this podcast, she had two guests in her studio. And I pulled it up because she texted it to me and I was listening to it on the way home. And they were, they were a married couple, And the woman tells the story of how her adulterous husband had devastated and destroyed her life by his infidelities. And she hung in there with him for a long time, but confessed that at one point, she was praying regularly that God would kill him. So great was her pain and her growing hatred of that man. And then the man started to tell his story there in the studio. He was a professing Christian. He'd gotten onto the fast track, big money Big boats, cars, stuff, toys, and sadly, other women too. And an elder of his church eventually grabbed him as his marriage was falling apart and told him, you know what, you have a very serious problem with idolatry in your life. Do you read your Bible? And he got the typical whatever guy response. Yeah, I need to do that a little more. Not really anymore. And this godly, wise older man in their church, who was an elder, gave the man a Bible, gave him an empty journal, and said, you are going to read your Bible starting today. Here's a Bible, here's a journal, you and I are going to meet weekly, and I want you to read X number of chapters every day until you read something that impacts you, and I want you to write out by hand in this journal every verse that God uses to impress something important on you from his word. And the man obeyed his elder. He obeyed his elder in his church, and he did that. And he was sitting there in the studio, this is years later, in that studio with his wife with a notebook of his own handwritten notes, hundreds of pages. He had kept track of all the pages of the many notebooks he had filled over the years. He was on page 1,467 in about the 10th journal that he'd filled with notes. And he and his wife had reconciled, and he'd repented of all his terrible sins. I couldn't help but be moved to tears by this. But you know what? What's always wrong with us? When we have problems or issues, what's always the problem? We all have in our hearts, as John Calvin taught us from the Word of God, we have this idol factory. The heart of man is an idol factory. We don't drift towards holiness. We don't drift towards God. We drift away. And if we we don't know this yet, You must come to understand that the culture that you live in today is almost comprehensively toxic to everything good that our blessed Redeemer wants us to know, think, and believe. And if you're not a Bible reader, you're not going to know about any of it. If we fill our hearts with toxic foolishness, with mindless entertainment, then toxic fools is what we will become. Just like the man who drowned himself in idols and nearly destroyed his marriage and family with toys and lust and foolishness. A godly elder kicked him in the pants and told him what he needed to do to, and what he needed to stop doing, what he needed to start doing. And he filled his heart with the word of God. And he did what, what many immature, cowardly, infantile men in our culture and our churches refused to do. He took charge of himself and disciplined himself for the purpose of godliness. And the fruit was beautiful to behold. A healed marriage, a healed family, and an entire Field filled with shattered idols that didn't satisfy him and which were destroying him, which he shattered himself. Would to God that all of us availed ourselves of the unfathomable, incredible amount of light Jesus has shined upon us by giving us a Bible. Why do we linger in darkness when God has shown us the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path? Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he told disobedient, stubborn, foolish Israelites, whom he knew full well were not going to listen. He knew full well they weren't, weren't going to heed anything, but he, he told them in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, "It's not my word like a fire," says the Lord, "and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces." And they looked at him and said, "That's nice. Who cares?" Back in the well, the Reverend David Brainerd. Y'all heard of David Brainerd? The guy who died in Jonathan Edwards' home. He was only twenty nine years old. Died of tuberculosis after laboring as long as he physically could for the salvation of American Indians in the early 1700s, he wrote this, quote, When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of him the more insatiable, and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness! Oh, for more of God in my soul! Oh, this pleasing pain! It makes my soul press after God! Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey!" On April 17th, 1747, he wrote, Oh, I longed to fill the remaining moments all for God. Though my body was so feeble and wearied with preaching and much private conversation, yet I wanted to sit up all night to do something for God. To God, the giver of these refreshments, be glory forever and ever. Amen. February 21st, 1746, my soul was refreshed and comforted, and I could not but bless God who had enabled me in some good measure to be faithful in the day past. Oh, how sweet it is to be spent and worn out for God. this young man was five days before his death, five days before his death, Jonathan Edwards, who was helping take care of him as he was coughing up blood and dying of tuberculosis at at the age of 29, Jonathan Edwards wrote this about the scene. On the morning of the next day, being Lord's Day, October 4th, as my daughter uh, Jerusha, who chiefly attended him, came into the room, he looked on her very pleasantly and said, Dear Jerusha, are you willing to part with me? I am quite willing to part with you. I'm willing to part with all my friends. I'm willing to part with my dear brother John, although I love him the best of any creature living. I have committed him and all my friends to God and can leave them with God. Though if I thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you. But we shall spend a happy eternity together. End quote. And Edwards wrote this. In the evening, as one came into the room with a Bible in her hand, He expressed himself thus, Oh, that dear book, that lovely book, I shall soon see it opened, the mysteries that are in it, and the mysteries of God's providence will all be unfolded. That God would speak to us directly in the sacred pages of this library of 66 books, which we call the Bible, is such an act of unspeakable love and patience on God's part, is it not? Redeem your time. Redeem your time for the days in which you live are evil. And I hope and pray that to all of us, if someone comes near us five days before our death holding a Bible like Brainerd, we'll be able to say and really mean it, oh, that dear book, that lovely book. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wonderful Christian people who went before us, who translated the Bible into English, who preserved it in its original languages, very often at great cost. May our Bibles not be wasted upon us. Help us remember to whom much is given, from them much will be expected. Thank you for your grace that forgives us even of our sinful neglect of your word. Be with us for the rest of this Sabbath day, and may our hearts rejoice in knowing that we are forgiven, that we are accepted, that we are right with you, that we are your children. We ask in Jesus' name.